I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. Brought to you by Lacole. We're going to be getting into Giro Stage 2 first, then Liège, Baston Liège, men and women. We'll put timestamps in the show notes and in the YouTube video description if you want to check that out and go to whichever you want. But starting with the Giro, which was a great stage, as you know, our Giro podcasts are brought to you by Lacole, our show partner. Lacole produced performance cycling apparel with a focus solely on road performance and making you go faster. They are the official kit supplier or apparel supplier to Bahrain McLaren. Bahrain McLaren, by the way, with Mark Pudun, the Ukrainian, we forgot to call him out as a potential uh, stage winner in this year at Italia in our preview show. That was remiss of us. And unlike a lot of other brands, Lacole focus solely on road. They don't produce gravel clothing, some random shorts for you to wear on your gravel rides. It's all about road performance and road kit and making sure they're the best possible, and that's what they devote their energy and time to. If you want to check their kit out, you can find them at www.lacole.cc. That's L-E-C-O-L. CC. But Giro d'Italia stage two from Alcamo to Agrigento, I believe one of the recent finishes in Agrigento in 2008 was, uh, or 2006 was when <laughs> Ricardo Rico finished ahead of, I think, Joaquin Rodriguez and Danilo De Luca. Um, but a bit of a different racing era back then. Today, it was a similar finish though. Four categorized, or four climbs at the start in this 149 kilometer stage. And then they weren't that serious, 4%, 4Ks at 3%, etc. Then pretty much rolling flat to rolling flat, nothing that would cause anyone or any sprinters any issues. Into an intermediate sprint, 46Ks in, then a second intermediate sprint, 138Ks in. And then I think it's like a 3.7K, 5.2% climb up to Agrigento and it's undulating. Some parts were actually de- were definitely steeper than others. It wasn't five percent the whole way. I think we the names we put out as potential stage winners yesterday were Matthews, Ulissi, uh, maybe even Peter Sagan. Normally, if it was on his usual form, I think we mentioned or I mentioned yesterday. Um, but yeah, Ulissi and and Matthews, particularly Matthews, we thought uh, was going to win today, or maybe Joao Almeida. But a break did try and form Benji. Who was in that break and was it allowed to go up the road or did a team actually take ownership of this this stage? We had a five-man breakaway. It included mainly Thomas de Hent who launched the attack and spent most of his watts creating that breakaway. The others were kind of following. It was like the uh, Thomas de Hent train that pretty much left the station or the peloton in that case. The likes of Ben Gastauer, Mattia Baiz from Androni, I think. Tonelli was there as well. So not the strongest breakaway outside of the end. So it became very clear that every K went point and intermediate sprint they passed that the end was taking them and he wanted every single one of them. And the thing about the end is he always wants to win the gates. And it's not always necessarily because the points are useful. For KOM, he probably does want to go for it. But 
in regards to the points classification, he doesn't care about it. He cares about the money because the Gent is the kind of rider that wants to try and take everything he can throughout the parkour to make his team, well, happy about him also, but also in general, he's kind of a holding person in the sense that whenever he wins a jersey or something, he's got a, a grandiose collection of those and he fights for every single jersey he can to add on to that collection. So special rider in that sense. A lot of riders would say, I'm not going to take this intermediate sprint to try and save some energy for the K1 point afterwards. Nah, the end is different. Anyway, f- despite that breakaway, having the end, it did not actually look to be succeeding too often. We honestly didn't really have a danger in there and they were caught pretty close to the finish line though with about 20-ish kilometers to go. But in the meanwhile, a lot of stuff happened. We had an intermediate sprint where, well... It looked like it was quite hilly towards that intermediate sprint. So I was thinking that riders like Matthews and such could really be better there compared to a Gavidia, a Viviani, a, well, Demar as well. But the sprint kind of ended differently because we had the end taking up the points in front. That means that only three points were left, three, two, and one point for the peloton. So not totally worth it to always go for it, but... They did sprint for it, and it was just behind the corner, so Gavidia slides into the corner first, Damar in his wheel, and Viviani in third-ish wheels, two-and-a-half wheel. <laughs> he was, like, next to Damar, but he slipped, and he fell onto the ground, and luckily he was the only one that crashed, but unfortunately he did crash, and Gavidia ended up taking those points while we didn't really see it in the first place because the uh, camera decided to go towards the breakaway the moment they hit the intermediate sprint which is, uh, yeah, unfortunate. Nonetheless, we had DeMar coming second on that one. So they were taking the three points and the two points. And Viviani looked to be... Well, we weren't sure whether it was Viviani or not, but a minute later, someone crashed at the back of the peloton and that there was his teammate, Consoni. So it was pretty clear that both of them had crashed at that point. So Coffet is not looking so good in this stage with crashes all over. Now, that was basically it for the intermediate sprint and the setup, but there was one rider that was always off the back. Also, at that intermediate sprint, he was off the back, and it's a rider that's really important for GC and for the youth jersey. Alexander Vlasov, the uh, hope for Astana next to Fulsang, and he actually ended up abandoning very unexpectedly. He went to the back and just stopped at an intersection where the car of Astana was parked, and he bent over for like quite a bit because it looked like he needed to puke or something. So it's probably an illness or something. Hopefully it's not anything related to the three COVID patients they had last week, but it's very coincidental that it's at Astana. So let's hope that's not the case. But yeah, a magical loss, a huge loss for this Juritalia. Uh, magical is a weird word to use, <laughs> but a uh, very important writer for youth and GC. Honestly, I'm quite sad. Yeah, it's a real shame because I was so excited to see what Vlasov could do in this Grand Tour. I had him as, I had him as really making a name for himself in this Giro. I thought some of the stages really suited him and his style of rider. He obviously won Baby Giro a few years ago, um, and this is the next step for him. He looked really good both before lockdown at Provence and after at Emilia Lombardia, etc. And yeah, just a real shame that he is sick and yeah as, as Benji mentioned I think there's been um I think two of the riders 
that Astana was supposed to have at the Giro had to pull out because of something related to COVID. I can't remember whether they were confirmed cases or not. I don't think so. Um, it was more just a precaution. And yeah, I, I don't know what I don't know what Vlasov is sick with, whether it's food poisoning or whatever. Uh, apparently, he said he felt sick last night. He still did a good TT yesterday. His time in the TT, given the time he went uh, with the wind conditions, I think was a, a time that was of someone who wasn't sick um, because even if he was 2-3% worse or under the weather, I wouldn't be expecting him to do that time, only 57 seconds back with unfavourable wind conditions. So back on Thomas, that is. So, yeah, um, it's a real shame. It's I wanted to see how Astana would use their two weapons against Thomas. They now only have Fulsang, who's probably not a better climber really than Thomas in the big mountains. So... When is Fulsang going to gain time on Thomas without having Lopez or Vlasov to attack him now? They've lost their second best rider, who we thought was going to be their main GC guy on day two, and they lost a guy that came was on the podium of the Tour de France on GC before the last main stage and stage 20 and won maybe the hardest stage. So on day one, Miguel Angel Lopez. So not a good start for Astana at this year's Giro. Real shame for them, shame for full saying, but it's not over yet. But not, yeah, he'd be thinking, oh, wow, what if I'd been at Lombard, uh, Liège, Baston Liège today? Um, but I guess I still think he can do a good result here. It's not it's not the end of the world. But, yeah, it was not that exciting a stage for the middle section, the break. It seemed to me like the teams chasing were very happy to have them mop up the uh, bonification seconds. Could you remind everyone, Benji, how that works with the intermediate sprints? Because I need reminding almost every stage, and I think some of the riders do, how the bonus, how the intermediate sprints work at the Giro with points and bonus seconds. So every single one of the intermediate sprints gives 10, 9, 8, blah, blah, blah points. So um, that's what they give when for it comes Chiclamino. to points. 10 points max for Chiclamino, indeed. And additionally, the second intermediate sprint in a stage gives three, two, and one seconds to the first three riders. Now, if I have to be really honest, I don't actually know who won the last intermediate sprint because I was not really, well... I think it was the Hen. Yeah, it was breakaway indeed, you're correct. The Hen took it and I think it's ahead of Gastauer and then Van Empel. So wasn't really mattering for GC anyway, so... This stage, it didn't really come out, but maybe in one of the next stages that intermediate sprint might be useful for, I don't know, a GC rider that wants to get a second or something, which, yeah, might not be worth the effort, to be honest. It depends on the stage. Yeah, I think the teams chasing the GC teams were happy to let the breakaway take those bonus seconds. Otherwise, you've got to, I guess, worry about is another GC rider going to take those seconds just before the final climb. Um, But yeah, it's not... Not a bad idea for Thomas Tehent to mop up those seconds where possible. Maybe uh, Etna probably too hard tomorrow, so it won't matter. But, yeah, I guess he's a man that if there's money on the line, why not take it? I'd pretty much think the same way. It was Ineos chasing, helped out by UAE and Sunweb mostly. Uh, for today, Rowan Dennis doing a lot of the pacemaking, um, particularly in the middle section of this stage, just keeping that break at like three, four minutes, keeping it in check. At no point did I think the breakaway was going to succeed because there were multiple teams. Even Bora were kind of helping out a little bit. And as it got closer to the finish, there was a descent sort of into the finish, but not a proper descent, but definitely a downhill of some description. And 
after that last intermediate sprint, all the GC teams came to the front and just started drilling it. Uh, Jumbo Vism with Tony Martin initially. Then Yuel Almeida had the Quickstep boys driving it on the right-hand side just after Jumbo Visma, Ineos as well. But then they kind of all disappeared. I was actually pretty surprised by that. I feel like they abandoned Thomas a little bit today in that finale uh, and he had to fend for himself, which he did a fine job of, but still. Like I know Gunner is in the pink jersey, but his job is to drive it for Thomas and keep him safe at the front. And I think if Luke Rowe was winning the Malia Rosa today somehow, he would have still done his job of driving it on the front for Garen Thomas since the bottom of that climb. So, yeah, I think a little bit weird for Minios. Definitely not their, like, best team of, you know, Van Baal, Rowe, etc. Kwiatkowski, who were just Tour de France veterans in Grand Tours. Um, so, yeah, something to, def- something to watch. Something, like I mentioned the same thing about Jumbo Visman back in the Tour. Uh, Bora Hansgrohe working kind of indicated that, hold up, Peter Sagan's still in this race. And this is a finish that's not outside of his capability. He's obviously feeling good for it today. And but Jan Sunweb were working for Michael Matthews. So UAE were kind of oh sorry, UAE I should have mentioned Mikael Berg in the youth classification jersey, in the white jersey, because Almeida is in the uh, purple points jersey. Berg was working very, very hard on the front, doing a fantastic job today, backing up after yesterday's third. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure who they sort of all went into the bottom of the climb uh, together, to be honest. They they called the breakaway with about 10Ks to go and UAE eventually started to turn up the heat. And I think there was Giovanni Visconti there at the base as well, um, making it, yeah, trying to make it hard. Like why, Benji, explain to me, why would some teams want to make this as hard as possible from the base? Because we saw FDJ pacing but not too hard right at the start of this climb yeah there's two different kind of people with two different goals here you've got the likes of a Ulysses with the squad of UAE you've got the likes of Demar with the squad of Groupama these are two opposite examples UAE is going to try and pace it hard because they know if Demar is with Ulysses at 100 meters to go then Demar beats Ulysses in the sprint now the difference is Groupama tries to set a pace which is just low enough to keep Demar on the threshold to allow him to stay in the group. And they tried that for about the first kilometer and 200 meters of that climb, but we quickly saw Demar fall through the peloton, to be honest. So yeah, the teams like UAE succeeded in making that climb much harder. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got riders like Matthews, who are probably more on the Ulysses side of things, you'd think, and Sagan maybe... UAE, etc., would be thinking he's more in the Demar spectrum of not climbing so well. I think a lot of the no one was really talking about Sagan too much as a favourite for this stage. And I made a video this afternoon because I was like, remember when Sagan used to just destroy stages like this? And I, we sort of mentioned it at the end of the pod last night because we were talking about Matthews and Ulysses and uh, they're they're the heavy favourites and Almeida maybe. And then we were like, well. Sagan <laughs> used to always win stages like this, or at least he'd definitely be in the top three. And, um, yeah, so he was looking pretty good. Eventually it was – the main move is when UAE turned up the heat massively. I'm not sure who it was. Maybe it was Rui Kosta I saw in the bunch. No, sorry, he was at Liège, best on Liège. Yeah, I was watching both races at the same time, so you've got to forgive any crossovers like that. It was either Valerio Conti, 
I think it was Conti who let out hard for Diego Ulisi and then like really let out hard, almost gapped, like created a small gap with like four riders before Ulisi even attacked. Then I think Ulisi attacked Wackerman then tried to follow him, Luca Wackerman, but it was, yeah, Ulisi really strong attack from quite far out, like over 750 metres to go. Um, Sagan bridged across, and then I think Mikel Honore was there as well, uh, the rider from De Koenig Quickstep. He was one of the only ones that could follow the move of Diego Ulisi, uh, but it looked like Ulisi had Honore on the limit uh, at that point already with like 500 metres to go. Um, they had a fairly big gap to the other riders, like Matthews, Thomas, I saw the Ineos jersey at the, at the front there too. They were a good five seconds behind. And then, yeah, Luca Wackerman, I think he'd like just attacked out of that group or attacked a bit earlier. The man from Vini Zabu KTM, he ended up coming fifth on this stage, by the way. And people were saying I was high in a preview show for hyping him up too much. I'm telling you, this guy should be on a World Tour team. He's a World Tour level rider. And look how aggressively he rode in this finale. I know he's an older rider, but this year he's World Tour quality rider. Um, but, yeah, then Sagan, dialing back the clock, Benji, coming across and bridging to Diego Ulisi, who had admittedly maybe sat up a little bit with 5.50 to go with Honoré, but no one could follow Sagan across. It was just him going across, it seemed. And I think maybe he, like, used Vakerman as a platform to get across or Honoré. I can't remember which one exactly, but still, no one followed him from the main group, Matthews, etc., uh, or Almeida or Brambi or Nibali. And, yeah, then he joined a group of Ulisi, Honoré and Peter Sagan. Honoré is a uh, Danish rider, by the way, for Quickstep. You might not know him because he had a fair while off. I think he broke his back uh, at some point, similar injury to what I had, actually. So it's good to see him back. And then Ulisi, I think, was on the left-hand side behind Honoré. Honoré was leading them out. Sagan had just bridged across to them. It was about 250 metres to go then at that point as he just made contact Honoré sort of started sprinting really early, came off the barriers a little bit, opened a nice gap for Ulisi on the inside. He didn't really squeeze him, but it was kind of tight, but it was fine, and he held his line. Ulisi squeezed through. Sagan had to start sprinting on the right of Honoré, sort of on this uphill little pinch in the last 125 metres, and immediately when you saw Sagan kick, you knew he didn't have it. Ulisi was kicking away easily, even though he already had an advantage when I think Sagan just got to them. So magic win from Diego Ulisi. He's had, what is this, his seventh Giro d'Italia stage win. He's got 37 career wins. Um, yeah, he's just climbing so well. And I was just, yeah, super impressed with what UAE and Ulisi did today. And also just as impressed with Peter Sagan coming second. But should we, should we be surprised, Benji? by Sagan coming second. Um, like, are you surprised? I'm, I'm, I'm in two camps. I haven't really decided whether I'm surprised yet, which kind of means I'm not surprised. I'm surprised with the current form that he had in the 2020 season so far, and I did not expect him to close that gap so easily, not going to lie. But I'm also pretty, yeah, I feel like he's also still not there as in the days where he could actually win these races because... In the past, Ulisi would have lost this one against Sagan. But today, that's very much different. And 
I do feel like Sigan deserves credit for this one. I did not see this coming, so I guess that's uh, good on his part. And I do expect if he keeps up this form, he's going to have a large chance of winning a stage in this Giro, which was his actual goal going into this one. Now, one of the things, Honore, we spoke about him a lot already, but he was one of the people that I certainly did not have on my radar for this kind of stage. I feel like he was also always a top 20 guy on small Belgian cobble classics. And I think in Milano Torino, he was up there as well, but that was a flattish terrain as preparation for Milano San Remo. So yeah, I generally didn't have him on my radar. I didn't really know what rider he was either because he always top 20s everything. So I was like, okay, maybe he's that kind of rider, but it's good to see that he's coming out in some kind of terrain for once because I... I always felt he was the rider on the Koenig that I could not profile well. And it's good that I know what he actually does now. But additionally, I do want to give a shout out to the guy that came 15 today that we also did not really see coming in the time trial, Sobrero. He is actually good on this one as well, a 15th position. So that guy is at the age of 23, getting a 7th spot on the first time trial, a 15th spot on the second stage. So honestly, insane work already by by that NTT rider, and I think the likes of GC riders also need a bit of uh, assessment. We don't have anyone actually losing time. If I look at it, we do see that Nibali's eighth on this one, so a good result for him. Thomas as well with an 11 spot, full sung up there as well. Did you expect anything more from these guys, or do you think that they're just keeping themselves in a position where they can keep this up and they can not lose too much effort on a stage like this, not risk anything? and come out of this towards an Etna stage with the same amount of time as the others? I thought there was going to be time gaps when I saw what UAE did. And UAE were like, we're not going to the line with Matthews or uh, Sagan or Demar. So we're going to make this climb as hard as possible from far out. And Conti's definitely a man that can do that. And yeah, and Ulysses probably a better climber in these sort of finishes, it seems, than... Uh, Matthews or Sagan. I mean, he came, Ulysses came third in Giro dell'Emilia and eighth in Lombardia, second in Gran Piemonte. So he's climbing way, way better than Matthews. And so that's why they wanted to make the climb as hard as possible. And it was perfect tactics from UAE. Hats off to them. They're doing a great job at the moment. <laughs> Good last month or so for them. And, but yeah, I thought there was going to be a time gap, Benji, because I thought Almeida was going to be able to actually get a gap on at least. A, like a gap enough to actually have some seconds count against someone like Kreuzweig maybe. But Kreuzweig actually did pretty well. 16th, like for a guy that's not very punchy at all, that's solid. Um, Andre Vendrame maybe a little bit disappointing. Uh, Pelo Bilbao, like that's pretty good, ninth position. Um, but yeah, Luca Wackerman, fifth. Michael Matthews came fourth, by the way. So Ulysse first, Sagan second, Honoré third, Matthews fourth. Almeida sixth, Wackerman fifth. Yeah, the Matthews winning the bunch sprint, it's clear that he well, he didn't follow either of the two moves, whether he couldn't or didn't want to. I don't know which, but he didn't follow the UAE Ulysses move, which was kind of telegraphed, to be honest. Like, Conti went to the front, they started driving it. Um, it was pretty telegraphed. It wasn't a sneak attack. And then I didn't really see the exact time when Sagan attacked out of the main bunch bridging across, but... He didn't follow that either. So it's going to be difficult to win stages like this uh, when you've got two of the two of the favourites going up the road in the last kilometre like that or 800 metres. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's not the end of the world, but it's clear that on a finish like this, it's quite hard. You've got to hack right UAE and uh, Ulysses and even Yas again, who I thought, I thought on a hilly finish now, I'd kind of had Matthews over Sagan, but that seems to be kind of wrong. Uh, actually, maybe Sagan just got his timing right and Matthews didn't, but yeah. Re some other riders I thought would do better on this stage. Nathan Haas, a man who's came, he's kind of like fourth in Amstel Gold previously. Um, I don't know if he was out of position or whatever, but like losing, I think he lost like a 90 seconds today. Maybe he missed out. Maybe he was doing work as a domestique or whatever. But yeah, sometimes I'd be kind of expecting him to be going for this as more of a all rounder, one day guy who can climb as well. Um, like his one stage in Burgos, Oman. And, yeah, just fourth in Amstel in 2017. Just thought he could be sort of a race or a stage he'd be targeting, but he was quite a way down. Obviously, Rick Zabel, I think, lost the KOM jersey today. Uh, Matteo Fabro, I guess he was leading out for um, for Peter Sagan. But, yeah, it was nothing really happened on GC. Thomas looking pretty good. Thomas, though, very isolated. Uh, so, yeah, just something to bear in mind. The Ganner and Gegenhart were the same time as him, but really Jonathan Narvaez was the last man I saw actually doing work for Thomas to keep him in position. Um, but, yeah, do you any, – any learnings from this for GC, Benji? Any learnings for riders going forward? Do we need to revise how we view Ulysse going forward, winning stages in this year's Giro? I don't think so. I think we had a good mindset on Ulysses being a favorite on this one. So it's not really a surprise. What was a surprise to me is that Matthews didn't win it. Not going to lie, I had him as dead favorite for this one, but he seemed to be a little short to stay with the likes of Ulysses on this one. I was looking through the standings to try and find people that potentially lost time on purpose today regarding tomorrow's Etna stage. And I, yeah, honestly, I, I can't find anyone that really lost a lot of time, but we had Antoine Tolok lose seven minutes, Shofri Bouchard, my um, my KOM guy, but I'm not sure if he crashed or lost time because two riders from Ajazer crashed with about 12 kilometers to go, so it could be that he was one of them, it could not be, so I can't really go off of that. Matthew Holmes lost six minutes and a half today, so potentially he's doing that assessing tomorrow's stage. He's a breakaway guy from Tirreno, so he's surely going to try it. I think he won that stage that Port was supposed to win in the Santa Stuart and under because yeah, Port always wins that except for this year. Jakko Hanninen lost uh, four minutes and a half, but again, as a rider, don't know if he crashed or not. Like you said, Patton at the start, he is losing five minutes, whether it's on purpose or not, but it's it's a bit too difficult to figure out who of these people actually lost it on purpose because so many people lost like six, seven, eight minutes today that it's kind of hard to start guessing, to be honest. So, I don't know. I'm going to deep dive into it tonight, and I'll try and see if I can put something on Twitter later on, if I can find someone that actually is doing a, doing a bit of a sandbagging today, but doesn't look like it for now. Anyway, outside of that, I've got the feeling that, well, I expected more from Vendrame. He was up there a lot in the end, but couldn't make the final leap. So, yeah, I... um. I expected more from him, not going to lie. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're not criticizing riders often. We're, we're more saying 
so particularly with the young riders like that, you know, you've got Honoré taking that step, Lachman, he's not a young rider, but he's still improving in a way we thought that was possible. Vendrame, uh, we thought, could be that rider who's taking that next step to really contesting world tour stages like this, getting in the top five with some sort of regularity. Um, but didn't look possible today. Tomorrow's stage where we could see some GC action from Enna to Etna, from Lingua Glossa to Piano Provenzana. It's a rolly stage once again. Uh, there's, it starts with, in the 151-kilometre stage, a descent and then two sort of Liège-style climbs, actually, 1.9Ks, 8.3%, 1.4Ks, 6.3% in the first 20Ks. Then a rolling downhill, pretty flat. Then an easy climb, the Nicolosi, 9.1Ks at 4%. GC guys won't be concerned by them at all. A few other sort of small climbs, 4Ks at 5%. Just after the first intermediate sprint at 108Ks. Then, just 20Ks later, uh, there's the second intermediate sprint at the base of Mount Etna at Lingua Glossa. Bit, bit strange. And then the... 18.6k, 6.7% climb up Mount Edna tomorrow. So it's an undulating climb. It starts pretty gradually. It starts pretty easy, to be honest. Actually, the first 2k's are easy. Then there's actually some easy sections in the 13th and 15th k's. And then it's really the last couple of kilometers are like 9%, 9.5%. So this is where I thought <laughs> Vlasov could launch something. Um, tomorrow and he's got his guy that i just thought had more he's got more punch than kreuzweich to get away from people or later in stages you saw that you know he won giro de emilia kreuzweich's never won a race like that um i don't think <laughs> don't no one dig up something from 2011 <laughs> <laughs> that he won but like recently he doesn't win race like that so vlasov got more kick but he's not here obviously now kreuzweich's already lost a minute 40 people got to be aggressive benji i mean I don't know what will happen. If you put a gun to my head and say what will happen tomorrow, I'd say on GC, nothing. Um, that being said, Simon Yates is a lot more aggressive than a lot of the riders that were at the Tour de France, Pogacar accepted. And, but Yates didn't lose that much time either in the TT, so he didn't lose much time as Kreuzweig. So um, I don't really know what will happen tomorrow. Not enough people have lost time to like a lot of time to make a breakaway going out on the road, fine. Maybe people just want to – Ineos wants someone else to take the Maglia Rosa. They think Gunner's going to lose it on the climb anyway. So if a breakaway rider takes it, whatever, it means they can take the day off controlling things. I think that'd actually be pretty smart from Ineos. I think Gunner showed today that he's, he's not getting up that climb, I don't think, unless they go very slow, uh, <laughs> not losing enough time. So – yeah, or you, maybe you think he is Benji. You reckon? No, Benji? I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I just imagine yeah, them I, going very, very slow. <laughs> they have to go very, very slow up the climb. No one doing anything. But yeah, I think they should. Ineos should take the day off tomorrow. Let the Mali Rosa go to someone else in the breakaway if they go. Um, if someone like Tolhook and he gains three minutes on you, that's fine. I mean, he's not going to win GC. So that's what I think should happen. Whether it does, I'm not sure. Whether Simon Yates takes up the opportunity to gain a little bit of time on Thomas if he sees weakness in the last two kilometres as well. I mean, you can only gain so much time as well with a big effort in the last two Ks. We saw that with Roglic, even Pogacar as well. Pogacar inched his way back 
into contention. It's not those big leaps where you gain like a minute or so. Ah, Pogacar gained a fair bit on Pedis- on uh, Pedersen's stage, but like two minutes or something, you're not going to gain if you attack in the last two k's. So, Kroosvark, I don't expect anything from Fulsang. I think will be hanging on. Yates will be the only man I'd really expect to be attacking Thomas in that last two three k's. Uh, and I don't think Thomas would be able to follow him, actually, to be honest. Um, but it's whether the risk, whether the reward is worth the energy expenditure for him, given that he's already second on GC out of the GC guys. But yeah, what do you think will will happen tomorrow, Benji? I think it's going to be really close. But I said that Simon Yates would win the stage. I think it's going to be really close between the breakaway and the peloton because the Etna is a pretty long climb and pretty high cadence for the peloton. It's not like it's very steep at certain sections so it's going to be a high speed climb usually there's a lot of wind issues so i'm curious how that's going to go i haven't checked the forecast for that area in italy and sicily but i always remember that they were always talking about wind on top of the etna because it's there's not many trees or something around the parkour so all the wind hits the riders i guess that is the most simple explanation of it i guess now i'm going to guess that the breakaway takes it but uh, I, I, I feel like I want to say Simon Yates wins it. I know that Nibali will try and attack because he was up there today already. He's eager and he will want to show what he's got, even though it might not be ideal considering it's not week three of a ground tool. But I'm going to go ahead and go for an extremely dark horse outsider. And I'm going to go for Dylan Sunderland of NTT from the breakaway. So uh, do you know Dylan Sunderland? Yeah, I'm aware of who he is, but still doesn't make what you said okay. <laughs> uh, he was 13th in uh, the Trudelangawi <laughs> mountain stage, <laughs> just behind his teammate Louis Manches, and I think that he's going to show today that he's World Tour territory. So, uh, yeah, Dylan Sunderland is my is my name call for uh, stage three of the Giro. I'm going with uh, Attila Valta, the Hungarian, tomorrow. Oh, good call. Yeah, it's, I knew I knew you'd be jealous. Um, so I'll be betting on him for tomorrow. Uh, full disclosure, like I sorry, don't. It's not betting advice, but I remember during the Tour de France, I gave you my my picks where I was like, this is my proper pick, like with the Lopez one. And then I'll say if I'm not too sure, I'll say I'm not too sure. Uh, but tomorrow, Valta, I like this stage for him. If the breakaway is allowed to go, that's the sort of man. Even Zacharin tomorrow. This is the sort of stage he could win two if he was going to win one because the descents aren't very long. I don't know if they're technical or not, and it's a mountaintop finish. Um, there's not like a proper HC climb or a cat one beforehand. So, yeah, Valter, Zakarin, but I really like Valter for tomorrow. And if it's the GC guys, I think Yates is the best climber out of the GC guys. Um, so I'd be picking him. And I think he's got Hamilton and uh, Haig looking really good. I think... Yeah, Haig was, I don't know whether he was that far up there today. Uh, Yates was in pretty good position as well early. Lucas Hamilton came 10th. So, yeah, I think Michelin Scott probably got the strongest climbing team. Um, Almeida, Benji, too hard for him? What do you expect to happen with him tomorrow? No, he's not going to lose time. Uh, I think that you he's going think? to have the benefit of not being a all-out favourite for GC. And if it comes down to the GC group still being one group with a kilometer to go, then Almeida's going to ride away and win. So uh, I've got full confidence in Almeida getting a top five in this, in this Giro from this point onwards. Definitely with Vlasov already gone, he's going to be head favorite for the white jersey. I think the only person that could touch him there is 
Maybe McNulty, if they go for GC with McNulty, I'm not sure that's the case, but McNulty has a good TT. He was a bit unlucky with late starters yesterday, but beat all of those late starters with utter ease. And genuinely, I think he could top 10 this uh, Giro, but Almeida is on course for top five. I can feel it with today again, an amazing result being up there, sixth position, I think, in the stage. So I'm um, I'm expecting him to not lose time, be in the group with the all-out favorites. And if that group of all-out favorites is towards the end, then he'll do a similar attack to Pozzo Vivo in 2017, I think where he attacked with about 800 meters to go and looked to be going on for a stage win. The difference is that Almeida can actually finish on the stage and Pozzo Vivo can't. Yeah, I wouldn't be too sure in this sort of climb if, I think if Mitchell and Scott, if there was going to be a GC team that takes it up with Hamilton and Haig, they could make it quite hard on this climb. And then Yates attacking in that last section, um, in the steep section. I don't, I'm not sure Almeida would be able to follow him, but... That really depends on whether Mitchell and Scott do that. I think it probably is more likely that Benji's scenario eventuates where they don't go full for the entire climb, which plays into Almeida's hands. He's got a better kick than all those GC guys by a significant margin, in my view. But that was a Giro, a pretty interesting stage, actually. A lot of little narratives forming there. You know, Uldesi versus Matthews. Is Sagan back? Is Thomas going to be isolated? Lasov being out, etc. So, yeah, quite a nice stage. Uh, actually, even though not too much happened until the finale. Um, yeah, thanks to Lacole, as always, for supporting us, uh, our Giro show and making it possible. Uh, 25 podcasts for the Giro and 23 sleepless nights for me and Benji. Actually, no, Benji gets plenty of sleep. I'm the one that doesn't get sleep, so I don't feel sorry for him. <laughs> but, yeah, Lacole, make that possible. On to Liège, Baston-Liège. It was on simultaneously. I'm sure if any of you were you were watching along at both, let us know how what sort of setup you had on the YouTube comments, like what operation were you running, Did you which race did you have on the big screen. I had Liège on the laptop in front of me because I knew it was going to finish after the Giro d'Italia stage. But, yeah, 257-kilometre stage, pretty similar profile to what you'd expect. Obviously, the... Punchy climbs the whole way. The main deciding factors are usually the Cote de la Redoute, 2Ks at 9% with about 35Ks to go. And then there's the Cote de la roche au faucon 244Ks in. Bet you like that French pronunciation, Benji. Then a 12K sort of descent into the finish and then like a flat, oh, it was a flat last 2.2 to 3Ks. But what happened... In this stage, Benji sort of initially, it was kind of like the Giro, really. It was a, a predictable breakaway forming and then, then control from the teams you'd expect in the peloton. Yeah, the breakaway, I never really saw an opportunity of them actually doing something. It was just the uh, forced breakaway of the day. One name I want to take out of that is Matthijs Paskins, who once again was in the breakaway. He was also there in Flesh Wallon. He was not the strongest in the breakaway at all, but that breakaway got gobbled up with about a good 25 to 30 kilometers to go but honestly you were talking about we were talking about this yesterday in the preview that you've got La Flèche Wallon that is basically a race where it's you can say boring until the last 1400 meters but I felt like this edition was relatively similar but the last 14 kilometers like LBL last year was 
so much more intense because it started earlier with the likes of Fulsang and so forth attacking. Today, we saw some attempts of that. We saw some attempts. The first person that attacked properly was Luis Leon Sanchez, if I recall correctly. And the people that bridged up were Ricosta. And very early on, I think with 20 kilometers to go, this was all past a lot of dude because no one really attempted something on a lot of dude. On a lot of dude, we basically had Devin and spacing for Ala Philippe and Hirschi being paced to the front. Did he have a teammate there? I don't think so in the end, but the tempo on a lot of dude no, was big. No, Bernard really was in trouble. Yeah, I, I thought so as well. I think Hirschi was pretty isolated on this one. By the way, the youngest team average at the start here, 22 years and a half average age, that utterly insane. Benoit being the oldest of, of that team, that's that's so surprising because he's not the oldest rider for sure in this peloton. So now continuing onwards, we had that attack with Luis Neon Sanchez, Rui Costa, and one person that bridged up, this was between the Laredoute and Rochefoucauld, was Alaphilippe. And it was such an early attempt because I did not see that potentially succeeding at all. And you got to keep in mind, Alaphilippe had been nervous the whole stage. He actually ended up in a crash at a certain point, but I don't think he actually crashed. I think he had to step out of his uh, pedal and broke his, uh, his shoe somehow because I think he switched shoe twice or he was trying to fix it and then had to switch the shoe. But by the way, got to talk about it switching a shoe on a bike how extreme is that i would never be able to do that so you take the new shoe and you put it in the pedal and you use that as like your yeah your force back to try and keep the uh the shoe on and 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 get that shoe on that's like insane technique for me like i was so surprised seeing that <laughs> i mean our sleep spent about 20 minutes after he'd had that touchdown or yeah i think he what you said he, he unclipped to avoid the crash maybe in that corner and scraped the cleat on the ground when he put his right foot down and then the, the cleat wasn't really clipping in properly. And he had about three bike changes, um, two shoe changes, like just consternation at the back with his car for like 15 minutes straight. I said, could Mads Pedersen just drill it on the front to put me out of my misery, please? Um, so he just <laughs> gets on with it because, yeah, it's just – at least they obviously got, got it sorted out. Um, we obviously, Benji glossed over the biggest news of the day, which was Tim DeClerc pulling with 87 Ks to go and Chris Ooh. Froome getting dropped. Um, I'm not sure what climb that was. Maybe it was the uh, Côte de, de Mont-le-Sol, uh, one of the first major climbs or the Côte de Vannes. I think yeah, it's that was, Yeah, it's kind of crazy seeing that happen. Like, it's a shame. Like, I'm not... I sort of brought it up facetiously, but it is a, it is a real shame seeing that, and I hope that I just I just can't see Froome improving um, this year, particularly maybe if he gets a proper uh, winter break into him again, that'll be able to help him get better for next season. But that's really far off the pace. I mean, he's not, he's never been great in one day races, so yeah, maybe it's so it's not not a big deal, but. Getting dropped when Tim DeClerc pulls uphill is not a great sign for the Vuelta, which starts sooner than we think. It starts in like a couple of weeks, right? So, yeah. Other news was Greg Van Avermark crashing and McCarthy, Jay McCarthy, the Queensland boy, crashing for Hans Grower. Um, and I think Adam Yates was somehow involved in that crash, but we didn't really see him and he no. had to abandon it as well. He was one of our picks. Well, I sort of had him for a top 10 today. And... Yeah, they hit a there's a bit of road furniture. It wasn't 
padded, wasn't didn't didn't have any fluoro stuff on it, wasn't highlighted, didn't have a marshal on it, and one of them either Van Avermaet or McCarthy hit it, and they hit it fucking hard, and particularly Greg Van Avermaet, he went down hard. I think Jay got up, maybe he's clutching his shoulder. I'm not sure how he is, but GVA was shaken. And he doesn't crash that often, I don't think. And even if he does, he doesn't abandon that often either. He's very consistent finishing races and grand tours. And, yeah, just a real shame. I was, I was worried for a second because he was in, like, full fetal position on the ground. So hopefully he gets concussion tested. Um, I'm glad that he immediately got pulled out of the race and the medic was with him um, and didn't try and continue, etc. But that was a shame. Do you... Yeah, what what should actually happen, Benji, in that sort of road furniture so people know what the norm is for that? So in Belgium, there's this new invention that I think Hans Wevelgem and the likes of those races, I think the Flanders Classics races are using. They're investing in that, and they've used it a lot on whatever classic we had a, about a week and a half ago. Totally forgot. But in general, it means that you've got flashing lights and you've got a fluo thingy on it that is huge so that all the riders in the peloton can see that there's something dangerous there and there is arrows that are indicating which side you can go on now usually in the past because obviously not every race has the money to invest in that stuff you have a motorbike rider that's standing in front of the uh sign the traffic sign and he has a little fluo flag that he's waving on which he's showing that there's something dangerous so that everybody in the peloton is able to see it. Now that's very dangerous, first of all, for the people that stand there. Honestly, if I had that job, I generally shit my pants every time a rider passes me. And the riders also, we saw it, I think, two days ago in Bing Bang Tour. We saw in one of the stages that there was a corner where, I think this picture is on my Twitter somewhere, but there was this intersection and... The peloton went to the left in that intersection and half of the riders chose to take the footpath on the left and half took the road. And because of that, the motorbike rider is standing in the middle and it's super dangerous for that guy. I think we've had plenty of those actually getting injured already in the past because of these, yeah, this way of signaling something. So the investment in that new kind of stuff is always great. But again, next to that, you would probably need some padding, like you said, to make sure that when someone hits a sign that they don't just face palm straight into the sign because Van Avermaet did that today and he was looking like he was almost knocked out when he was standing up. So yeah, that's that's not great to see. And I think they can invest in that kind of stuff, at least in a motorbike rider standing there, even if it's dangerous for the lad. Yeah, it's an issue that is in a lot of races, but this is a clear position where there had to be signaling and there wasn't. So it annoys me and it probably annoys the riders as well because it's, this is dangerous and it's not necessarily needing to be because I think for an organization like ASO, because ASO organizes LBL, then I expect more than just nothing. So I I expect more from ASO, honestly. Yeah, it's a, maybe you know, they, they did have padding on a lot of the road furniture. Maybe they just missed one. Um, it's not the worst safety thing I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, not not ideal either but getting getting back to the race they were coming up to the the last climb um of the day which was the Côte de la Roche or Faucon I think uh, if that's correct Benji and like it's definitely a steep enough climb that you can make a difference and that was where attacks were going to go 
it was with 17 Ks to go that they, yeah, they were pretty much all together, really. Um, they started to separate a little bit on the Redoute, but as Benji said, Dave and Enns didn't drive it so hard that there were splits. He just kept it hard. And then Tom Dumoulin went on the front, Benji, kind of surprised, clearly working for Roglic, I think, and driving it really hard from the base of uh, Rochefoucauld. And... Yeah, then here she was right on his wheel. Alaphilippe was marking there. Alaphilippe was marking everyone this race from like 35 k's in. Alaphilippe was marking everyone. Um, so, like, I actually think Alaphilippe was the strongest rider in this race. Um, and then Alaphilippe attacked over the top of Tom Dumoulin. It was kind of weird. It was like Roglic was six, seven wheels deep when Dumoulin was doing that lead out. Probably would have made more sense for him to be right there uh, with with Dumoulin near Alaphilippe, like Kwiatkowski, Hershey, et cetera, were there. But really strong, like Roglic had fantastic legs today because when Alaphilippe attacked, Hershey snapped straight onto his wheel on Rochefoucauld and then Pogacar bridged across to them as well. No one had been talking about him. I think we were remiss in not really talking about Pogacar enough on the preview yesterday as well. Uh, I think we probably did. I'm being a bit harsh on ourselves. Mike Woods couldn't quite bridge across to them. And then it was this... Actually, no, take it back a step, Benji. It was here she marking Alaphilippe first, and they did have a gap, and Kwiatkowski was properly dropped, and it was Roglic and Pogacar maybe relaying, trying to get across to him. And then here she, like, countered and started pulling in front of Alaphilippe, and then Alaphilippe stopped working, and then the two Slovenians caught up to him. So it makes no... Like, what's the reason why Alaphilippe wouldn't work with here she at that moment when they have Roglic, Pogacar, MVDP all dropped? Honestly, don't know, but I've got the feeling that there are quite a lot of things in this race where I'm like, what is Alaphilippe doing? Why is he doing this? <laughs> and we'll get into that later on. But I feel like he always makes a bit of um, not odd decisions because he's obviously a winner. So we can't really say that he made an odd decision at the World Championships or anything. But at this point, I feel like he could have worked with Hirschi and it would have been similar to the second stage of the Tour de France. Then again, the two people behind were going to work together. It's Roglic and Pogacar. They are pals, even though they did ride after each other today, quite clearly. So they weren't going to gift each other an LBL victory here. As you said, they were catching up. But what was noticeable for me was when they caught up to Hirschi and Alaphilippe, behind we had Kwiatkowski and what was the other guy? Help me here. Woods. Woods indeed. Woods was behind that four-man group and then Kwiatkowski was dropped by Woods for a bit. Now, what Kwiatkowski did in that descent was crazy. He flew to Woods' wheel, flew past him, and basically just dropped him in the spot in the downhill. Like, generally top downhill speeds. And yeah, I admire nice descents and his cornering was perfect. Kwiatkowski, man. I think he's an underrated descender, mainly because we always see him being caught up in the peloton working from for someone in the descent so because of that we don't see him as full in full force usually in the sense but uh, i admire it so much but woods yeah he seemed to be done by then and that was certainly the case but kwiatkowski also we had him catch up to that four-man group then we had another attack when the tempo in that four-man group stopped and kwiatkowski was in that wheel as well we had an attack by hershey who launched off the front and once again, the same thing happened. Alaphilippe bridges up to Hirschi, and they've got a gap of like a good 20, 30 meters on 
Pogacar and Roglic. And behind, we had Pirkowski dropped again. He was not coming back at that point. So we had, again, the same thing we just spoke about. The first two sitting up, Alaphilippe and Hershey, not really working well together, and the other two came back. So very repetitive behavior there, and it looks like they really don't want to offer each other anything, those first two. Oh, I think Hershey was pulling. Then he flicked Alaphilippe, and then Alaphilippe wouldn't pull. And then after that's happened a couple of times, well, you're not going to you're not going to keep pulling because then you're going to get attacked. And like we've seen it, that's what Alaphilippe does, and it, sometimes it works. Like it's probably sometimes good race strategy, I guess. If someone is stupid enough to pull you, then you can then attack them after you sat on for a bit. But when you're wearing the World Championships jersey and you're Julian Alaphilippe, no one's going to work for you <laughs> anymore and think that you're more tired than they are. Uh, like there's not even any point in faking anymore. And eventually those four came together. The two Slovenians, Pogacar, Roglic, Hirschi and Alaphilippe, they were pretty much getting onto the flatter section and then onto the descent as well, before the descent proper. And even, yeah, as a group of four, they weren't really working too well together. Uh, Alaphilippe was like delaying his turns, skipping turns. Roglic was pulling super hard. Roglic was... Yeah, doing a fantastic job, doing, I think, a lion's share of the work. Here she was kind of doing the shortest turns possible. I think the two Slovenians were working the hardest, to be honest. Uh, I think they were very – and that was correct, by the way. You've got Matthew van der Poel not that far behind. It's not like van der Poel got dropped 50Ks ago when they really turned it up on the initial climbs. Like he was 18 seconds behind them in a large group with Port and probably Uran, etc. But, yeah, mainly everyone was looking at van der Poel um so yeah definitely makes sense to be working even if you are with other favorites in that group it's better than trying to out sprint Matthew van der Poel in the flat finish and Alaphilippe kind of wasn't working eventually when the gap started to come down a little bit van der Poel was pulling really hard with actually uh your boy Richie Port uh doing a pretty good job and the gap came down to maybe like 15 seconds but then once they got onto the descent proper they really didn't look like that main group was going to bring it back. And then you sent me a DM, Benji, once they were like just on the end of the descent. They had an 18 to 20 second gap. Alaphilippe, Hirschi, Pogaccio, and Roglic on the Vanderpol, Benot, Bargi, Kwiatkowski, Woods group. You sent me a DM that there was someone in the middle of those two who no one had seen any images of. Yes. And it's one of those riders that, well, he's got one skill and he, he likes to use it. And He's a monster with it. Matej Mohoric, the best descender in the world when it comes to aerodynamic descending. And his technique is great as well, but I expect that to see... Well, I think there's still other people that have better technique in descending, but his aerodynamic descending is so good that he just beats everyone in descending. And he attacked in that last ascent, and in that last small descent, he went from that 25-second gap of that second group he was on 10 seconds suddenly, and the moment they reached the flat part into Liège, he was honestly straight behind them, like a good seven seconds behind. I was so surprised, but also not really. I was mainly surprised that Mohoric made that group because I didn't expect it. I thought he would not make that group, and he was with the likes of uh, a Van der Poel, a Woods, a Benoit, Bargil, Kwiatkowski, then Dan Martin. So these are climbers that are rate higher when it comes to punching than Matej Mohoric, but Surely didn't disappoint with that move, and he actually caught up with the group just before the sprint, didn't he? Yeah, well, 
Myridge did the same thing, a similar thing in Milano San Remo this year, actually. Not as hard a climb, obviously not as climby a course, Milano San Remo, but he got over the Poggio pretty well and was leading them on the descent, chasing Alaphilippe and Wafanat and was dropping riders and I think maybe even had to slow up. I think he's the best descender in the world right now. Um, I remember in Tour de France when Caruso and Lando were telling him to slow down on the Col de la Lure stage on the, the big descent of the day. He's just incredible. To shut down that gap, a 20-second gap, primarily on descent, which isn't that long, by the way, not that long a descent. It's the one that uh, Jakob Fulsang nearly crashed in last year when his back wheel twitched. And like Alaphilippe, Roglic, Pogacar and Hershey, they weren't hanging around too much on the descent. Like they were in super tuck, they were, they were moving, but they obviously weren't like Mohoric. Unfortunately, we'll never, like, we'll never see the images of it. And... It's a shame because if they had a drone on the road or something, and if you got a full view image or even his GoPro footage of Mohoric on this descent of Rochefoucauld, that would you could just mark you'd go viral on social media. It'd be incredible to watch for everybody. Um, it'd be a great way to market the sport. But anyway, the four, four guys up front, the one of the four favourites, started playing cat and mouse predictably because they did have a twenty second gap. They could actually afford to do so the van der Poel group was quite a way back and van der Poel wasn't like people were saying amstel gold amstel gold well he 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 was trying to rely on other people to pull and everyone was sitting on him as well so that wasn't helping him too much and mohoric bridges across to the alaphilippe hirschi roglic bagaccia group we're on the flat run into the finish in liege and We've got three Slovenians in that group of five now. Mohoric goes straight to the front and it, I don't know, I think he kind of, he didn't do the best job, Mohoric. I think he could have like sat on the back of them for a, a second or like soft pedaled, allowed himself a two to three second break before they realized he was there and then attacked them with momentum. Instead, he just went straight past them and Alaphilippe pretty easily got on his wheel, so there wasn't a large enough speed differential when Mohoric got there. Alaphilippe, the man who'd, simil- in the same race, closed down every attack, even from riders like Rui Costa, really early in the race, before the Rochefoucauld, or before it was really heating up, had closed down Hirschi's attack, and then failed to work just when he was with Hirschi. Alaphilippe then from like three, 1,300 metres or more, well, actually pretty much from the entire, halfway down the descent onwards, went to the front and was pulling and not just like soft pedalling, like he wasn't going full, but he was still pulling a decent amount. So I'm not sure if he knew what the gap was. He was also the man that shut down the move to Mohoric. So he'd both worked a lot, not always when he needed, well, not always when he had to, and then also didn't work when it would have made sense when it was just a, would have been a head-to-head sprint with uh, Mark Hirschi. And Hirschi wasn't pulling at all in the last 1,500 metres. He remembered stage two of the Tour de France when he got pipped in the sprint by Alaphilippe and he was saving his energy. He was riding a really smart race, Hirschi. Even when he was pulling in that last 4Ks, it was the shortest turns possible. Rolic and Pagacci were doing a really good job, well, like for the group, that is, pulling hard. And, yeah, Alaphilippe then comes around Mohoric. Mohoric drops off pretty much. He goes to, he starts his sprint actually off the wheel of Mohoric, sorry, starts his sprint off the wheel of Mohoric, maybe 200 metres out, 225 out. Mohoric was on the right-hand barrier. Alaphilippe goes to the left of him, 
moves back in front of Mohoric to the right-hand barrier, which is smart. You should do something like that um, because you're at that moment when you move back to in front of Mohoric, who's going backwards, you cut off the draft from behind you for a second or so. And then he's on the right-hand barrier here. She's slotted on his wheel, Pogaccia behind him, Roglic, like fourth wheel, all on the barriers. Here she then comes out of Philippe's wheel on the barriers to the left-hand side. So Alaphilippe's on the right-hand side on the barriers. Here she starts his sprint to the left-hand side of Alaphilippe. He's, this is like with mm, 100 metres to go maybe. Alaphilippe is losing ground to Hirschi. Hirschi's gaining pretty quickly on him. And I think maybe Hirschi was laying off a little bit before he started sprinting. And Alaphilippe looks over his left shoulder. He's still on the barriers at this point, flush with them, by the way. You couldn't even squeeze a rider on his right-hand side no matter how small. Looks over the left shoulder, sees Hirschi coming up and says, nah, not today. Fully moves his bike and chops Hirschi. Moves from the barriers to the middle of the road and Hirschi had to unclip. He made contact with his front wheel, completely cost all of Hirschi's momentum. And Pogaccia, who was then, like it was then a concertina effect, Pogaccia was, had been on Hirschi's wheel. He had his wheel overlapping to the left-hand side of Hirschi when Hirschi then had to move rapidly to the left to avoid crashing from Alaphilippe, chopping him. Same thing, domino effect happened to Pogaccia and he lost momentum. And then, yeah, Alaphilippe looked like he was cruising to the line. He got a big gap on Hirschi. The cameras even were focusing on him mainly. And then Stephen Bradbury, like, looked that up. Primoz Roglic on the inside, a magical gap opens up where Alaphilippe had just been before he moved off his line. Roglic keeps sprinting and keeps going. Alaphilippe posts up for the celebration like, 15 metres from the line, maybe 20 metres from the line, and fully stops pedalling, and Roglic ducks in on his inside. Alaphilippe's got his arms outstretched, and Roglic beats him on the line pretty easily. Like, I'm pretty sure Alaphilippe knew. And <laughs> this, was, this was one of the best moments, best finishing photos. This will go down in history, Benji. But, yeah, have I – what did you see in that sprint – um, particularly from Hirschi and, and Pogacar and, and, and then what happened afterwards as well in the Commissaire's room. So we saw in the sprint, obviously, that Alaphilippe was straight up deviating from his line, cutting into Hirschi. And yeah, that should not be done. That's obvious. We've spoken about it way too much on this podcast to our liking about deviating from lines, endangering others in the process. We had it with... Well, Bennett, at the start of the Tour de France, he did not get a punishment for that. We had Sagan in the middle of the Tour de France doing similar stuff. We have Alaphilippe doing it today. Yeah, it, it sucks to talk about because it, it, it stays the same. They keep on doing it, and I, I don't know why. And the weirdest part is, like, with 500 meters to go, I saw that Alaphilippe was already, like, making an odd move. He was almost crashing out of nowhere, straight into Hirschi, so he was just about to save him. And if that save wasn't there, if he did not have the technique to do that, he would have basically crashed that sprint already. So, yeah, he was doing some odd stuff in the last kilometer, and in the last kilometer with that sprint, I don't like it. And it seems like the UCI commission didn't like it either, because I think Hirschi complained and Pogacar after the race. I recall that being heard, making an official complaint. So they obviously wanted a spot higher because they deserve it, to be honest. They would have probably 
gotten over Alaphilippe anyway because he was losing speed. And he probably knew that because otherwise he wouldn't make a move like that. You're in a position where you think you're going to lose. And because of that, you try and block the others. But yeah, that should not be done in a sprint. And he was relegated. That is the normal punishment for this. In the rules, that is the actual punishment that the UCI should give in a case like this. And yeah, I think if it made up with a crash, or if Hirschi would crash or Pogaccia would crash, then it would have been a full DQ. But relegation, that means that you're being set to the last in the group, and sometimes you get points penalties or something. But in one day race, that's obviously not the case. So Alaphilippe is fifth on the stage. That means that everybody else moves up, meaning Hirschi comes into second, and Pogacar comes into third, Mohoric into fourth, and Alaphilippe finally in fifth. When you saw it live, Benji, this was this was not one of those ones where, where me and you and maybe La Flamme Rouge sit back and we're like, technically that should be a DQ and we, or a relegation, we think that should be a relegation, but it won't. When you saw it live, what percentage chance do you think that he was going to be relegated? 100%. I had, I had 100% confidence that UCI would not make a mistake on this one because, well, it's obvious that he ruined the final, like straight up ruined it because you never know whether Roglic would actually win if these other two stay upright. Here she was coming with a magical speed. Now, I don't want to say that in taking away something from Roglic's victory. He was strong today and I feel like we should still cherish him as the winner because there's probably going to be people that are saying, well, Roglic doesn't deserve it because blah, 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 blah. But Roglic didn't do this. Roglic is not at fault here. He just won the race. And Alaphilippe's the one that spoiled the party for Hirschi and Pogacar. So, yeah, at the moment of it happening, I was like, this is the queue. Uh, as in relegation, because I say the queue all the time, but usually I mean relegation by that, even though it's totally different. Yeah, I thought it would be a relegation. You probably as well. Yeah, I mean, Benji, you might want to go get yourself a little AeroPress. I don't know how you like to make your coffee. I don't even know what time it is in Europe, uh, whether you drink coffee after midday, because I'm about to go off. Um, I just saw De Kerner Quickstep released a statement from Philippe saying, I made a mistake for which I take full responsibility. I am aware that my swerve caused a problem to the other riders, and I apologize for that. But I want to un- underline that I didn't do it on purpose. and. That's just a straight-up lie. Like, this was a complete piece-of-shit move from Alaphilippe. He watched it in slow motion, watched the overhead. He's on the right-hand barriers. He looks over his left shoulder. He sees he or she coming and coming quickly. He knows there's a far, a big distance to the line, and he throws his bike to the left-hand side. There is zero chance he didn't do this on purpose. What, his bike just randomly threw itself to the left in the way of he or she the second after he looked over his shoulder and saw that here she was coming, like, get, the, get out of here. Like, it's pretty bad that he's not even taking proper responsibility for this because, yeah, he, I know he's kind of thrashes about all the time, like in the Tour de France, well, I was saying all the time, people saying you're an Alphalip hater, you're a hater, you're always criticizing him. Well, he is this sort of guy. And I see him do these sort of things where it's not been a big deal and he's kind of chopped people for like the sprint for sixth in a bunch sprint or whatever, in a reduced bunch sprint, and it's, no one really notices or cares um, in the sprint for sixth. Happened in the Tour de France, he like sprinted into Sturvin and, the, and bumped him. He came like way off from the left-hand side, um, completely out of control. 
no one really cared about it except me and people saying, oh, you're always criticizing him. Hey, I didn't have a word of criticizing, word of criticism for him when he won the world champs at Imola. Magic race from him, perfect race, had his head down, focused. Today, he was just a liability. Like Benji mentioned that with 600 meters to go, he like nearly did what Miguel Angel Lopez did in the ITT. He like veered his bike really savagely or suddenly because he lost control of his front wheel or something. And then just a straight up dirty move in the sprint. Like this is, in my view, just as bad as what Dylan Kornerweken did um, in terms of intent. Like the, the intent here is more clear to me just because of how he's looked over his shoulder and it's so obvious that that he's looked over his shoulder and then that causes him to chop uh, he or she really suddenly. And he or she like had to take really quick evasive action as well, whereas like, um, yeah, he, and he had no chance of avoiding it at all and that was his sprint over. He had to unclip. So, yeah, the intent here was clear to me. I can't believe he's trying to say that he didn't intend to do this. Um, it's a bit of a joke, to be honest. And he's already embarrassed or not done a good job by the Rainbow Bands in his first race. He's kind of let them down, to be honest. And then to not fully own up to it is a big shame. Unless he's saying, I'm a professional rider and I literally cannot sprint in a straight line. Um, and it was just a coincidence. I was looking over my left shoulder at the time. Maybe it's that. But the best thing as well is the instant karma. Like this is going to go viral on Reddit, I reckon, um, like big viral because he's fully posting up, puffing his chest out, <laughs> and Roglic keeps sprinting and beating on the line. It's it's so good. Um, it's like it's instant karma. And I think this is going to be almost a, as big a story as the World Championships win because it's just, yeah, it's so embarrassing for him. Um, but, yeah, I'm really – I want to also say I'm really, really happy for Primoz Roglic. Um, like, I, I couldn't be more happy for him. It shows a lot of mental fortitude to have both the disappointment – like, some people might never come back from what happened at the Tour de France. Like, they'd go into a spiral after that. Then he had the world champs where he had the whole of Belgium bang for his blood. And he's come back and he's won a monument, liege Baston liege from a reduced bunch of absolute hitters, uh, his first monument. Yeah, exactly. His first monument, probably the biggest one-day race he's ever won by a long shot. Um, just a great win for Primoz Roglic. That being said, I don't want to take away, I am so happy genuinely for Roglic. Great to see a smile on his face. That being said, I thought Hershey was going to win. Uh, he was coming pretty quick and to the left-hand side of Alaphilippe and maybe – I don't know, maybe Pogaccia could have got ahead of he or she, but to me it looked like he or she was going to win. And for him to have that monument, the opportunity to really truly contest that monument for that monument victory as a young rider, having that taken away from him is a real shame. Um, and I'm really, yeah, I real, feel really bad for he or she because you never know what can happen in a career. You know, it looks like he's going to win. He could win every race in the Ardennes for the next five years, but you never know what could happen. So... It's a shame when opportunities like this are taken away. And the same for Pogacar as well. He had the opportunity to contest this sprint properly taken away, and he was pretty cranky at the finish. Uh, but yet, in the end, Roglic first, Hirschi second, Pogacar third, Mohoric fourth, three Slovenians in the top four, pretty wild. Alaphilippe relegated to fifth, should have been DQ'd in my opinion. Matthew van der Poel sixth, Wood seventh, Teixe eighth, 
Warren Buggy, ninth, pretty good result for him actually. Mikhail Kwiatkowski, tenth. Martin, eleventh. Dumas, twelfth. Have I been too harsh on Alaphilippe there, Benji? Is there any benefit of the doubt in your mind about the intention? No, as in he wanted to move to the middle to block the people behind him. And I think that's what you're referring to in intention. I don't mean yeah. it in the sense that he wanted to make the others crash because even with Grunewagen, that was not the case. Some people see it like that, but I feel like still these are people that are in the moment and it's a huge, huge mistake. And yeah, I'm glad he got relegated for it. And I 100% agree with what you said in total. But I also want to like <laughs> lower our, our gear a bit because sometimes in the initial day after something like this, we start crucifying the person <laughs> that does it. I want to look back at the Grunewagen days because I made that mistake myself. While it's obviously a huge mistake, he didn't mean to assassinate Hirschi here, even though it could have accidentally have happened. Now, I have some other topics because let's dive out of that. That topic, but first of all, I would like to ask you your opinion. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. on okay, you first. Everyone in the YouTube comments, I'm sure you, you don't need a second invitation or hit us up uh, with hashtag LRCP. <laughs> Do you agree with us or not? Um, maybe this is one of those ones where I'm not where my hot take is actually on point. Uh, but yeah, let us know if you think I've been too harsh or uh, and Alaphilip. There's some sort of explanation, and he didn't really mean for this to happen. But yeah, sorry to cut you off, Benji. Go on. No worries, you were correct. I was just about to say something similar, but have some bad <laughs> news. Um, we have Greg Van Avalot, the guy that crashed today. He has severed shoulder ligaments, so it's oh, going to be sucks. close to make it for the classics. He hopes that he can get there, but it's quite troublesome. He didn't break any uh, any bones, so no fractures. So yes, that's the positive of that news, even though it's not that positive. So yeah, you said he was washed before, so we might not even see it this year, whether he's washed or not. I disagree with you on that, but yeah, we had a bit of, a, of an opinion on that. We'll talk about that on the classics, if he hopefully can get there. But did we miss anything more regarding LBL and or the Giro, you think? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think so. That's about it. Uh, obviously, sometimes, yeah, we, we come in with the hot takes, but I think we're on point here. Like, he yeah. got relegated. That's what should have happened. Uh, luckily, here she did. No one went down. It's a real shame about Craig Van Um I'm not sure. I said he was washed. Did I use those exact words? You use those exact it sound words. like it does sound like <laughs> me to say something like that. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll have to cop that on the chin, I guess, if he ever wins a big classic again. I think uh, Michael Valgren crashed as well today. I saw him in a bit of difficulty. Uh, uh, man, for the classic. Uh, that's your words, not mine. Now onto the women's Liège, Baston Liège, 135 kilometers long, a very similar finale to the men's race, actually Côte de la Redoute, 2Ks at 8.5%, 105Ks in, and the Côte de la Roche au Faucon, 1.3Ks at 10%, just before the finale, about uh, 14Ks out, and then the same, exactly the same descent into the finish as well. The contenders for the stage, or for the race rather, the names you all expect. Uh, Voss, Van Vleuten, Van der Breggen, Van Dijk, Diagnan, Longoborghini, Nuria Doma, Liana Lippert, I think, as well. Um, yeah, so they were all the riders we expected. Maybe Amy Peters as well, if Van der Breggen didn't have a good day for Bulls Dorman. 
Um, or Hannah Barnes was looking good, or, or Marlon Russa, the time trialist for Keep Paul Carr, um, or Demi Vollering, who'd looked really, really strong at Flesh Willon, actually trying to, the only one that really attacked Van der Breggen. But that was, I think there was live coverage uh, for quite a lot of this race, which is really good to see. I'm glad that in Flesh and Liège women's this year, there was much better live coverage than in previous years. When I caught on to the race, I think it only just started like a good 15 minutes, but I noticed that Lizzie Dygan was alone up front. And what happened was we had a group that was able to get away because it had some figures in there that are in the teams of the favorites of today. So as the favorites, like you said, Van der Breggen was up there. We also had the likes of maybe Eliana Lippert, Florcio Mackay, and Longo Borghini on that list, and also Ashley Momampasio, for example, maybe a paladin who also did well in this race last year, I think. So those people all had someone up front in a group of a good nine riders with the likes of Lizzie Dagnan, Grace Brown van Dijk, Mariana Voss, Amy Peters, Hannah Barnes, Reuser, Juliette Labou, and Katrin Allerud. Now, from that group, as we said earlier, Mariana Voss in the group for the team, the same team as Molman and Paladin. We had Dijkman in there as well. That is in the team of Longo Boghini, Ellen Van Dijk as well. So these people have teams, have riders up front, so they don't need to start chasing it. And the only rider that didn't have someone up front was basically, I think, Cecilia Utrup-Ludwig, because even the likes of Niwa Dorma had someone up front with Labu. So, no, with, uh, who is it? Ah, I'm wrong. Niwa Dorma, which... Hannah Barnes, obviously. So everybody had someone up there. And even, yeah, even Movistar was up there with someone. So it was pretty clear that the peloton behind did not need to chase except for the likes of Groupama. And Groupama never really did that. I don't think Ludwig even tried to cover that gap and cover the people that started attacking. So I think she missed out and that team missed out on that group. So from that point onwards, it was clear that the front group was most likely going to take the stage. They had a solid gap of like two, three minutes, and the peloton wasn't really chasing since they had everybody up there. Even Lionel Lippert and so forth had someone up front with um, Juliette Labou. So the front group was trying to make it. And when we caught up, Lizzie died in a good minute 20 ahead of that group of eight that was behind. So I was like 17 to 20 kilometers, Lizzie dying up front alone. Can she make it? And I was thinking that she could actually make it, but slowly but surely the gap started going down and going down. And we had one solid climb to go, Rochelle Faucon, when the people in that eight-man group started lighting it up. I think Grace Brown was the first to attack, right? Yeah, Grace Brown realized that that group wasn't really making any inroads. Voss certainly wasn't really able to bring it back. And uh yeah, there was no Van der Breggen there either. So, or Van Vleuten, I don't think they weren't pulling as Amy Peters for Bulls Dolman. So, yeah, Grace Brown, good time trialist. Uh, we mentioned her a couple of times on the podcast from Mitchell and Scott, the Australian rider. She started, at, I think she put like 30 seconds into, um, into Dignan on like the first climb straight after her attack, putting like from, taking it from like a minute into 30, that gap, the Chase from the Voss group was, yeah, it was being hampered by Ellen Van Dyke, the Trek rider, obviously trying to hamper the chase back to a Trek teammate. Dignan, obviously saw Dignan was really strong in a break at, uh, I think, Plouet in Europe, or on that European Champs weekend when she was in a break with uh, her compatriot Lizzie Banks 
on a keep pull car. They worked really well together and then Dagman took the win. She was super strong in that breakaway and no one even got near them. Um, and yeah, it looked like a foregone conclusion actually when that brake had stopped working behind the first chase group behind Dagman. But then Brown made this race really interesting. Um, she got it to 30 seconds and it was like 10Ks remaining, I think, and then eked it down to like 18 seconds, particularly when Diagnon went the wrong way around a roundabout and then lost like literally five or six seconds. When you saw Brown 20 seconds later go through the roundabout, she went straight through on the left-hand side and went way quicker. Diagnon almost had to come break and come to a halt in the roundabout. And But then unfortunately for Brown, there was the descent. So yes, there was like 4Ks left and she had a gap of 12 seconds. But So she'd eaten into it by another 18 seconds in 6Ks, I think. But then the descent, they were pretty much equal. I'm not sure she gained any time, actually. She might have even lost a second or two on Dignan, who seemed pretty smooth and efficient on that descent, getting in good position. And, yeah, didn't really make any mistakes there that I saw. And then after the descent, you got like 1,500 metres to the finish and you're pretty much going straight under the Flamme Rouge with like Dignan had a 10-second gap. so. 10 seconds in a K is pretty hard to bring back, especially when you've been on your own for the best part of half an hour or more for Grace Brown. But, um, yeah, I thought I thought she was going to bring her back with about 6Ks to go, and then when the gap held stable at the top of that descent and it was like 12 seconds, it looked increasingly unlikely and she wasn't really moving any extra seconds into it, Grace Brown. Uh, so, yeah, Lizzie Diagner wins by 10 seconds over Grace Brown in women's Liège, Baston Liège, a fantastic win from Lizzie Tigman. This, you know, this season she's won La Course, fourth in Flesh, sixth in World Champs Road Race, uh, first in GP Plouet that I already mentioned. She got second and third in a stage in Giro Rosa, and she was part of the winning Trek team in the Team Time Trial. So consistent. Makes me think actually, if she was on the Dutch team and trade places with someone, would it make that much of a difference and would she be winning even more races? Should we be talking about Lizzie Dijkman in the same breath as Van der Breggen and Van Vleuten? Probably not, given what those other two have achieved. Uh, well, Van Vleuten primarily last year and earlier this year and um, Van der Breggen in the last month and a half. But still, Dijkman looks like the third best rider in the world clearly to the next to the fourth whoever the fourth might be we haven't decided we don't have our list right here but yeah fantastic from Dijkman Brown second probably the best one day result of her career Van Dijk third Voss fourth Peters fifth so Dutch third fourth and fifth Hannah Barnes or Canyon sixth they were two minutes back by the way that Ellen Van Dijk group led uh, led group so Trek first and third by the way and yeah, Marlon Russo seventh, Juliette Labou eighth, Catherine Alrud ninth, and the Norwegian from Movistar, and then Lippet was in like a third or fourth group. She led them over the line for tenth, following eleventh. So yeah, pretty interesting race, given that, especially when they reel you back in, Benji. Because like, did you think the race was over when Dignan had a minute twenty and they were all looking at each other? And then it, did you think Brown could actually bring her back at any point? I never really thought she would get caught. The eight women behind her didn't really seem like they were cooperating too well. And it wasn't until Rochefoucauld where Grace Brown made that move that I had hope for that group anymore because that attack by Grace Brown really hit into that gap quite easily. And 
that went straight to 30 seconds. And normally it hit 30 seconds, I was, this could still happen. But I kept in my mind that we still had that downhill section that Fulsang almost crashed in last year to come after Rochefoucauld. So I was still doubting that a 30 second gap was pretty hard to come by, but she came very close. And honestly, hands down, best race of her career, best result of her career, I think. So well done by Grace Brown. And yeah, she came a bit too short. So she might think again tonight, where could I have gained that time? But instead, she should honestly be proud of it. Yeah. And yeah, reel us back in. I thought she was going to bring her back. And I was, I would admit, I did put my Australian hat on for a second and I was cheering for Grace Brown. But still, yeah, a great result. As you said, what a monster day of racing once again. And if you made it that far, you've been listening to a lot of cycling in the last week or so from us. We've been trying to keep you up to date with all the, pretty much every major race. I hope we're doing a good job. If you do appreciate the content, um, make sure to give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a big difference and help us out a lot. So that's all we ask from you, I guess. And obviously, if you want to check out LeCole, our show partner uh, for the Giro d'Italia, www.lecole.cc, because this Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast for the Giro Stage 2, Liège Men and Women, Ulysse taking the W, Philippe disgracing himself, and Lizzie Dignan remaining a dominant force in the women's scene. Thanks for listening as always. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.